Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Miguel Iterate, for the Lights Out podcast, you'll have to excuse me if I'm more excited than usual, but I am more excited than usual. That's Mike Davis over there, and guess what? Mike Davis, he's more excited than usual. It's unbelievable. We're all excited here. You see this? this, this Miguel, it's contagious. It is. Contagious. It's crazy. It's crazy. And, you know, we're 70-some interviews into this. What excites, you know, old, crusty dudes like us at this point? Mike, what do we got? We got something special. Well, someone you landed, Miguel. This is a fish you reeled in. <laughs> Bob Myrowitz. Now, for what those not he- familiar, we're talking about the money behind UFC one. And that's, you know, all you really need to know owner and, you know, partner of Horion Gracie and Art Davy and that team. And, you know, people there, and we wouldn't be here without this man. Miguel, I've had business partners go to prison. I've gotten divorced. I've lost friendships. I've made friends. I've gone to a dozen countries because of this guy. That's it. You know what I mean? And, and you know, let's just try to, we're going to try to dial down our little fanboy selves for this one, you know, which obviously it's probably going to peer through, but we're, we're going to, this is going to be a good one. This is going to be a good one. And he doesn't do many of these. In fact, you'd be hard pressed to find him do a video interview, an extensive interview on the UFC and its early dealings. In fact, I don't even think it exists. Like there's quotes in articles, but an actual video interview where he goes like on a deep dive about the UFC. I don't think it exists. I couldn't find it. Yeah. And it's all, it is a little bit of a special interview for us. We're very grateful to have Bob Meyerowitz. Now let me point this out to you guys out there. Okay. And I did track Bob down and you know how I did it because Mr. Meyerowitz actually commented on one of the old podcasts that he listened to. He's a fan. If this gentleman can comment so can you god damn it so just you know comment like you know subscribe do the whole thing and if you're a fighter out there do it we'll go through our list and we're going to track you down for an interview but bob meyerowitz that's how i got him was because he actually is a fan of the podcast and i can't imagine anything that pleased me more than that you know so thank you very much bob for joining us we'll be back with chris and bob here in a short bit mike wrap it up for us here Okay, February 5th, I am in Tampa, Florida with World Class Grappling. Please register on Smooth Comp if you're a jiu-jitsu player. Um, I've got several dates happening in March and April that I'll be releasing soon. But Smooth Comp, February 5th, Tampa, Florida, I'll be hosting the jiu-jitsu tournament there. Miguel, I think we've dragged ourselves long enough. BetDSI.eu, BetDSI.eu, promo code LIGHTSOUT, 50% of cash deposits up to $1,000. Please, guys, it helps us out. Like, share, subscribe. And without further ado, Bob Myrowitz. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode here. Uh, We have a rare treat tonight. Usually, you know, we do the deep dives. We go in and we find out what a fighter did to get to the UFC, how they got here, what their path was. However, that would never happen if it weren't for our guest tonight. That's why I'm excited to have uh, the guy who's been here from the very beginning, was involved with the sport. Ran the UFC for many years, was the owner. Uh, just a, a real honor to have this guy. And we're going to get in a lot of good information on what made this sport what it is today. Uh, 
ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. And Mr. Bob Marwitz. Bob, how the heck are you? Woo. <laughs> I'm doing really good. Thank you very much. Excellent. So good to have you here. Um, you know, we, we talk about uh, your air and you quite a bit. So I'm just going to let Mike, he, he's got a whole list of questions and uh, yeah. me and Miguel will be joining in. All right. So, Bob, don't worry. I've only got a few <laughs> questions for you. Um, in essence, I know you come from the music world, the pay-per-view world, and you have a set system and a process to go from the beginning to the finish line when dealing with contracts. And coming from your world, you dealt with lots of people with their hands out, some real, some false, and it is your job to kind of figure out what is what. And in the book that our Davey wrote with about UFC One, he had talks about the contract signing between the two of you, everything is getting done to completion except the final signature. It, it seemed as if you guys were almost negotiating up into the opening bell. Is, is, that, is that correct? Um, I can tell you this much. Horion was on one side of the desk. I was on the other side. My brother was my attorney sitting at the end. And Horion stands up and slaps the table. And he says, in 75 years of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, we never lost once. And I stand up on the other side, slap the table, saying, 75 years of doing business, Myrowitz never lost once. <laughs> and we're standing there face to face over the table. Afterwards, my brother said to me, I want you to know if he came over after you, I was on his side. <laughs> <laughs> but we sat down, we agreed on everything. Uh, you know, it is a negotiation is a negotiation. Um, you have to sit down and you have to fight for what you believe in, do what you think is right. And you have to get it done. And you have to be willing to stand up and walk away. Um, I will tell you, and everybody has a version of how this got started. But uh, I was in the music business. I was doing pay-per-views. I was wearing the Rolling Stones, the Who, YouTube, bands like that. And um, I was also a horseback rider. And one of the men who I rode with happened to be, he was a, a Supreme Court judge, but a head of the New York State Taekwondo Association. And he used to say to me all the time, why don't you put Taekwondo on pay-per-view? And every week I'd say to him, not enough people watch Taekwondo. One week I said to him, can Taekwondo beat up karate? And he was so offended. Eat up. That's not what it's about. These are dis different disciplines. They couldn't even fight each other. I said, you mean if I wanted to study one and I want to know which one would be the winner? And I can't do that. He was so offended. So I decided not to say anything further to him. But every Tuesday, I had a creative meeting in my company. And I said, you know, Taekwondo alone may not do it. But what if we had Taekwondo versus karate? That would give us double the audience. And wouldn't everyone want to know who would win? The following Tuesday at a meeting, uh, the next meeting, somebody said, well, what about jujitsu? What about boxing? We said, fine, let them all fight. But uh, although I boxed when I was a kid and, and in college, I really didn't know anything about the martial arts. Um, so the next thing was to find somebody who knew about the martial arts. 
And Horian Gracie had this whole article in Playboy. And so we contacted Horian and it turned out his partner, Art Davey. And really with their help, I mean, I could not have done this without having somebody who really knew it. They really knew it. And um, that first show is the only show I have ever produced that I didn't go to. You say, how could you not go? I'll tell you how. (laughs) I produce all the music shows and I'll look at the three of you and say, you'd all do it. Everyone would say to me, you know, here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. I know music. I don't need you to tell me what to do. When I was here, I didn't know what to do. And I didn't want to get in the way of the people who did know. So I sat home and I watched it on television with my college roommate and his 13-year-old son. <laughs> and my college roommate said, I can't believe you're doing this. This is horrible. You're doing this? And I'm sitting there. And as you remember, he got his teeth kicked out. And I'm sitting <laughs> And yeah, you might as well have been a pornographer at this point in his eyes. And then the thing is over. And my friend Richard says, "Uh, Bob, I can't I really I can't believe you did this. (laughs) Nicholas says, this is the greatest thing I ever saw. The Gracies will rule for seven years. And can I be a blood boy at the next one? Yes, he got it 100 percent. And so we just had to go in. We had to get better announcers. We had to get a better referee. And one cannot overlook how important Big John McCarthy was to getting everything on the right track. We got better announcers. We got better referees. We started to make a better show. So how come John McCarthy had such a loud voice in the beginning, like beginning of this process? John McCarthy... First of all, he was a student of the Gracies. Uh, He he really knew what he was talking about. And what did John McCarthy really do for a living? He's a police officer. That's right. And he spoke. Training. Training officer. He trained. And he spoke to those people like a police officer. This is what you do. This is how you do it. And don't mess around with me. And if any of you could have attended those early uh, fighter meetings, John McCarthy was quite incredible. And you watch him in the uh, octagon, he was amazing at how he controlled everything. We could not have done it without Big John. That's fantastic. Um, Did you, at some point, was there the worry? Because uh, at least from Art's perspective, he's he's a big reference for us. He said after UFC won, like you said, the refereeing was a problem. It was all Brazilian refs for the first one. And then John McCarthy comes along, but as you said, he's a Gracie student. Did, how, how much time did it take for John to earn your respect that way? The first fighter meeting. Okay. The first <laughs> time I heard him speak, I said, that's what we need in here. We need someone who's laying down the law. Um, they know, take command of the audience. Yeah, they're in charge. Right. Yeah. I got the gun. I'm in. I'm the law. I mean, it was really, that's how John made it. That's what he did. And it got everything and everybody under control. So what were the phone calls like from weigh-ins, like the fighter meeting that you were receiving? Because obviously you're in New York. There was almost a mutiny going on in the fighter meeting because as we had talked about the referees, you had Joao Bajeto and Elio Vigio, both um, you know, students of Horian. They bring them up. 
you got Horian's brother in the tournament, and now you're telling everybody else that it's a level playing field. And, you know, our Davey said it was just absolute mayhem. Were, were you getting by-the-minute phone conversations from the venue of what was taking place? No, we got updates continually, and I was very firm, and I, I to this day believe it, and I know certainly uh, Ken Shamrock, a lot of people believe differently. I believe that Hoyce Gracie was the best fighter in those first three events. For sure. And uh, was there the whole concept of having no weight limits, no time limits, that favors jujitsu, yes, to some degree. Uh, but I don't think he got any favors from John McCarthy. I don't think he got any favors. I, I think he was the best fighter. Now, okay. things change, and people learned, and, and it moved along. People sometimes credit me with inventing MMA. I did not. Um, ultimate fighting, I take credit for. But MMA, really the fighters did. And once they started learning all the things they had to know, especially the American wrestlers, you're wearing Mark Coleman shirt. You know, Mark Coleman was incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So oh, my, in that my, first event, our Jimerson, the rumor was <laughs> that he was offered a percentage of the company or $20,000 to fight. Is there truth to that? None. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't make sense. Yeah. Let me tell yeah. you, if I could have gotten Mike Tyson, I'd make him an offer. Art Jimerson, with all due respect to Art Jimerson, and it was Art Jimerson's choice to come in with one glove. Now, I'm from boxing. I fully believed that a boxer would defeat any of these fighters. Wow. Okay. And then so, I saw, go ahead. You, know, you can close the gap. You know, that destroys everything a boxer knows. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. All right. So you Hold on, Mike, I, got a, I got a quick question here. Um, you talked about, you know, after the first one, getting better announcers or whatnot. I had heard I just did a really bad movie and had a, a Bill Wallace superfoot in it. And I heard he was there and was kind of a pain in the ass to deal with. Is that true? <laughs> Heard he was a real pain Nothing in the against time. Bill Wallace, but Super I would nice. say Bill Wallace uh, holds the record still to this day for the longest on-air belch in history. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it was difficult. It was difficult for everybody. We were all I have said this about the Fertitas, about Dana White. They had a chance to be fans. We were fighting every minute for the life of this organization, the life of this sport. Uh, I went, we were doing a show in Rhode Island and I had, to, I went to court every place we went. And um, we had a great attorney and I'm sorry for the moment, I don't remember his name, he was great. And he was a martial artist. He was down on the floor showing the moves, did everything. We come back the next day and the judge says, you can do it here in Rhode Island as long as you follow the rules of the WWE. What does that mean? So we can use chairs. Uh, the, the, my, my lawyer gets up and says, Your Honor, WWE is not real. And the judge says, I've been watching it for 20 years. It is real. Oh, my God. And my lawyer says, You down. guys can pull this off with that. Yeah, it sounds my like a good idea. Down. We're walking out. I said, Why did you sit down? 
He said, where are you going to be tomorrow? I said, I'll be in New York. He said, I know, I'll be here in front of that judge. I can't fight him that much. Um, we, when we did a show in Detroit, again, I was in court and the judge ruled that we could do it as long as there were no closed fist punches. <laughs> I would invite all three of you to go in and tell that to Ken Shamrock 20 yeah. minutes before he goes out to fight. Um, well, he followed the rule. That's for sure. That's, I, that's the dance it. in Detroit. <laughs> Nobody else did. Yeah, no one watch it. Let's folks, I don't know, you, Mike, I think you want to take it back a little bit. We'll get to Detroit a little bit later, right? Yeah, so okay. here we go. The major, like you guys started advertising in major magazines for martial arts, like Karate Magazine, Black Belt Magazine, but they never gave, like in, essentially at that time, you paid for advertising, they would cover your event. They went out of their way to badmouth you guys, it seemed. Well, I, you know, the martial arts world, um, every uh, sensei, everyone we went to thought you can't do this. We do judo, we do jujitsu, we do taekwondo, you cannot do this. They were all opposed to it. So we were fighting with the mainstream. We were fighting with people who had no idea what was going on. Um, unfortunately, and, and again, I come from rock and roll, but in rock and roll, I was always doing charity shows for people, with people. I was always a good guy. And now I was in jail, not in jail, thank God. I was always in court every month, every month. Yeah, it's not easy. That's not easy. So you, your you, real quick. Do you think that the martial art people you went to and they didn't want this to happen, do you think it was because the purity of it or it might expose their art? Do they even tell why they didn't want it to happen? Do you think they might show why they're not the best or why, why they not want it to happen? I was early on in rock and roll. And so all the older agents and managers wanted nothing to do with guys with long hair. Um, they wouldn't let them play the places. They wouldn't pay them. It was a whole different world. Same thing here. We were just new. It was different. Wow. And they had to adjust and say, well, what happens if judo loses? What <laughs> happens? Now everyone is teaching MMA. But yeah. then it was just one thing that was taught. The entire industry was was predicated on they're the best art. No, yeah. no it's true. It's true. So the original, one of the original sponsors was Gold's Gym. And I'm assuming you kind of handled that the relationship with them. I and did not. You did not. Oh, okay. I was really, uh, we had made, we had put together the production, putting together a production and getting the right people to produce it, the right cameramen. All these things had to be figured out, had to be worked out, had to be dealt with. I was dealing with that. I was unfortunately dealing with all the cases in court. I was unfortunately dealing with, uh, you know, cable operators dropping us, people coming and saying all these things. I'm sure you will want to get to, um, uh, what's his name? He ran for president. Um, oh, John McCain. McCain. We got that. John yeah, we McCain. got it. He's down the line. I'll show you a picture of me and John McCain. <laughs> I'll tell you what I regret. When he ran for president, I don't know if any of you have seen that he, I was on his show. I don't know if you want to get into it, if I'm getting ahead of you, but 
No, no, please ah. continue. He's yeah, flowing, please. he's flowing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Carol Klempner, who is our publicist, calls me and says, uh, Larry King would like you to come on with John McCain. I didn't know who John McCain was at that point in time. Oh. He's a senator, she said, and he wants to be in charge of boxing. So we had a show coming up, and I think with Ken Shamrock and Hoist Gracie, and I had this big red poster of the two of them standing posed. So without asking any questions, I get on a uh, shuttle to Washington, D.C., and I take the poster with the idea that I'll hold up the poster and promote the fight. And I get in there, and uh, there are two people, two guys in suits, and they're, they have folders this thick, and it says UFC. Oh, no. Shit, man. He's a senator, <laughs> you know. Has he got my income tax? What does he have in there? And I have this stupid poster. <laughs> so I go into the bathroom. The back of the poster was white, and I want to sort of tear it up and make it look like pages with writing on it. <laughs> but destroy the poster. So now I don't even have my stupid poster. I go back out. He comes in with yet another person. Each of them has a folder this thick. And we go into the studio and uh, Larry King says, hey, John, where were you Friday? Everyone was expecting you. I go, oh, yeah, they're friends. I don't know them. I don't have a, a thing this thick. And anybody who saw it, John McCain knew nothing at all about ultimate fighting. And um, it was no big deal for me to make him look bad because he didn't know. And he said something, you know, you're just doing this to make money. You don't care how you hurt people. And we went to a commercial break. And I said, look, it's not a personal thing. You happen to be there. And now I'm sorry, I don't remember. Richie Rivera is a boxer who unfortunately died in the ring. And unfortunately, McCain was sitting right there where he yep. died. And unfortunately, talking to somebody and laughing. Now, he didn't know the man was dead, and he wasn't laughing at that. But there's a dead man, and you're laughing. I said, I didn't and wouldn't bring that up. I'm not looking to embarrass you. We come back on air, and he says, Mr. Meyerowitz just brought up the Jimmy Rivera. It was the wrong name he used. Uh, fight. And let me say, at least we had a referee in the ring. <laughs> he never even watched it. He doesn't even so know what he's talking about. Do you know that every time I had to do an interview on television, they would say, do you want to say anything first? And that's because they were going to attack me. And I'd say, yes. Have you seen the UFC? And they'd always say no. The only one, Neil Cavuto from Fox, said, yes, I have. And we go into the interview, and I could tell he doesn't know anything about it, and he's never seen it. The interview <laughs> is over, and Neil Cavuto says, you know, I want to apologize to you. I said, because you never saw it. He said, that's right. When you asked me that question, you caught me off guard. I didn't mean to lie. You just caught me, and I said, yes. They didn't, nobody knew what was going on. And I'll tell you to some degree, those of us in charge, we were figuring out what goes on and trying to make it safer, trying to make it better, trying to make a better show of it. Uh, there was tremendous amount of work to be done. So when you asked me about sponsors, I had people who dealt with sponsors. Yeah, yeah. And anyway, that's, that's fair. That's a fair point. Like you're sitting here interviewing me about something you don't even know about, but you want to attack. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's not a very solid foundation. 
UFC so I, two. I, I, I'd, I'd like to point out to like everybody out there, like this is my first chance ever to sit down with Bob Myrowitz, and I think we sort of knew it. You know, he was from New York and big business before and stuff. But we had a real friggin' CEO for this sport from the very beginning, and we mistreated him. Just a side note, man. That's because he had a he was a legitimate businessman bringing legitimate business tactics to it, and the sport's so new that it fucked everything up. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry, I just want to point that out. So UFC two wow. goes for an eight man tournament to a sixteen man tournament. And our Davey in his book said, you know, he kind of surprised, you know, you guys with that format. When did you find out about it? And were you opposed to it? Yes, I wanted the eight man. And, and to my discredit, I wanted the, the tournament. I felt you have eight men fighting. And most of your audience doesn't know them. By the end of the night, they're rooting for one of the two people left. 100%. 16 ruined that flow and made it too, you know, I I just did not like that. Um, Quite frankly, once we got people who were better known, we discarded the tournament and, you know, we didn't need that anymore. And I would rather have somebody fight one fight in a night rather than three. Well, and doing a 16-man tournament, I mean, it's not even who's the best fighter anymore. It's just who doesn't get hurt. Any that's, that's, that's right. Four fights in one night's unreal. You can't do it. No. You know, uh, it's only been done once. That was the only time you ever did it. Um, Hoist Gracie is the only person ever to compete in a 16-man tournament in UFC and, and have his hand raised uh, every single time. What? All right, so, Bob. I watch like the UFCs with just extreme scrutiny at the beginning stages in order to find like different avenues of questions in order to bring light to different aspects or components of the event. At UFC 2, Big John McCarthy, it appears about halfway through because the rule set was, I mean, obviously there isn't, there is rules, but it's advertised as there are no rules. But with Big John McCarthy, it's it almost appears as if somebody was placed outside the cage and he would instruct them to throw the towel in. Is, is there any truth to that? Uh, there is a belief. No, there's that okay. way. It's not true. Was okay. Orion Gracie outside? Yes, he was. But did he tell anybody to throw a towel in? No. Okay. When it got too ugly because you know, under the rule set, he wasn't allowed to stop a fight, but you, know, you guys obviously worked that out, but UFC two, might be the most brutal UFC in the history of the organization. Uh, a lot of it shocked me. Um, and, and as I say, we were working always to make it better. And um, it's, uh, they called it a cage, but we, my original idea was that it would have uh, glass sides so that I could shoot, you know, a television show through that. And they immediately told me someone will really get hurt. And we never used it. And instead we went for the metal link, but plastic covered fence that gave some and no one would get hurt. We looked to make it safe. When Tank Abbott lifted and I forget who and was going to throw him over the top, we then made (laughs) it higher. (laughs) Yeah, that's wild. That's wild. Um, at any point, were you worried about Horian having too much influence over the event and what was taking place? 
It wasn't too much influence. Horion knew what he was doing. And by the way, Horion is one hell of a good businessman. And um, it had reached a point where there were just two sides to it. I was not looking to build up any kind of uh, like an infomercial for their family. I, I was not looking to build up a, a side business. I was just working on this. And um, I was putting a great deal of my own money into it. There were no other, no one else was doing it. It was all my money that was doing it. And there were things I felt we had to do. And I understand their side of it. I mean, to this day, Horian and I are great friends. Now, really? you, you, you mentioned, too, that, uh, you know, jujitsu at the beginning, and then it started to evolve, you said. Now, by yes. you, then you had Severn, Oleg, Ruas. Now you're starting to see the evolution there. At some point, you know, going with maybe some of the other promotional streets, were you looking for a poster boy? Was there something of that that to replace Hoyce with what were you looking at with the upcoming talent? What was your thoughts? I have said this all along. I believed it in rock and roll. I believed it in this. People don't watch sports. People watch people. And you need somebody they want to watch. Again, with the tournament, I wanted by the end for them to be rooting. They didn't know that guy when they turned on the television. By the end of that night, they were rooting for him or against him. I don't care. But they were rooting. <laughs> That's what we were always looking for, to find who's a star, who has that star quality. It's an amazing, interesting thing. Who has it? Uh, I just mentioned Tank Abbott. Tank Abbott had it. Was he the best fighter we had? No. 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 But he had something. Um, and, and the fans really reacted to him. And he knew how to play the part. He was great at it. So it, it the yeah, a lot of the early participants had almost like a cartoon nature to them, like the Harold Howards, you know, Fang Maturi. You know, they all kind of had like a gimmick to them. Tank Abbott, obviously, we've already mentioned, Ferozo. And you guys kind of, Oleg Tektarov, you guys kind of followed that flow. And the one person that never made their way to the UFC was Hicks and Gracie. And there's, you know, a story about him almost replacing voice at UFC three, what were some of the demands that you had heard he would want in order to participate? Um, just <laughs> let me say, I don't think he ever would have participated. Okay. Was it something that they were holding him over your head to, to no, 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 no. give us your thoughts? Um, supposedly, uh, and in my mind, this is just so they get a no. Hickson wants a million dollars. That's, you know, ridiculous. Okay. You're not going to get it. Uh, but uh, I'll tell you a Mick Jagger story. Um, Mick Jagger, we were supposed to go take him, the Rolling Stones, to China. And uh, the head of arts for China wanted to meet him. And I said, he's absolutely, believe me, the man's a businessman. He knows what he's doing. And we also, the Rolling Stones had an attorney who handled all their international work. And he was out of Arkansas. <clears throat> he came up. We're in a suite at the Plaza Hotel. It's me, the attorney, and this woman from China. 
and Mick is late and she's getting annoyed. Knock on the door, I open the door and there's Mick totally drunk. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. and the woman walks out and the lawyer turns to Mick and says, if you didn't want to do it, why didn't you just tell me? The same thing with hits on. They didn't want to do it. And they didn't want to just tell me. So a million dollars. You're not getting a million dollars. Okay, I can't. Um, I think the smart move for Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was having Hoist Gracie. Hmm. And that's what they were looking for. He, he, they were, we were doing a fight with he and Ken Shamrock. I wanted him to take the gi off for the uh, pose for a picture. He said, I can't. <laughs> They'll see I have no muscles. Uh, <laughs> but that worked perfectly for Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Here's a skinny little guy, and he can beat all these other guys. He can beat Dan Severn. He was perfect. The exact thing they needed. I would have loved to have seen Hickson fight in UFC. Yeah, I think it's, it's a first Mick Jagger story for the podcast, I might add. <laughs> so um, at UFC 3, you start there's a lot of attention being drawn to the UFC and what you guys are doing. And with that, you comes in a lot of unwanted type of people. And with UFC three, you get Josan and Kim and chemo showing up. Chemo obviously made his debut at UFC three, Josan a little later on. Um, what was it like dealing with those two in particular? Um, you know, you have to, uh, <clears throat> especially someone who considers themselves tough, and for good reason, they all, you all can consider yourself tough. But if somebody stands in front of you and says no, and you don't like it, then you can't come in. These are the rules. This is what you have to do. Um, and that's how I dealt with them. And I got along with them. Uh, Chemo's father, I got along with. They were, uh, you know, you just have to say these are the rules. And you got to be willing to stand up to it. Um, would they have knocked me over? Yeah. My boxing was too far behind me. <laughs> yeah. Now, let, let me ask you because, you know, uh, you mentioned that you like the tournaments. And, you know, with the Genom situation, you did go back to the tournaments and stayed with them for a while. It seems like that was your baby. Did you like the purity with no rules? Because Joe Son was part of the initiation of one of the major early rules, which is no more groin strikes. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that played out in your mind? Yeah, groin strikes, and I'll go back to boxing. It's a very strange thing. Everyone wears a cup. And in boxing, you know, a guy goes down for 10 minutes. Please, you know, uh, <clears throat> I didn't mind. And really, Horion had said, we're going to make this like real fighting. We're going to see how these different martial arts work in real fighting. And we're going to make it as real as possible. No weight class, no time limits. Um, you go in and you fight. And of course, somebody said it earlier, of course, there were rules. We said there are no rules, but of course there were. Um, and I am happy to say 
that the entire time I owned it. Nobody ever suffered a major injury. Now, that's not to say that I want to be down on the ground and have uh, Mark Coleman punching me. <laughs> but if you stood up and you were separated and Mark Coleman could just, or any boxer could hit you, you get hurt. Yeah. So like at the UFC three weigh-ins, there was almost a brawl between Chemo and company and the Gracie family. So we had, we were doing kind of like a multi-part series with Chris Brennan and Chris Brennan disclosed to us that Chemo was paying a guy named Randy Ziegler to go take privates with Hickson and then come back and show him everything in order to help prepare for Hoist Gracie. And at weigh-ins, when they walk into the lobby, like Hickson recognized that Ziegler was on, with chemo and they kind of did two and two. And there was almost a huge brawl that broke out. What, what is your recollection of that? That there wasn't a brawl. Okay. And that in fighting and in, in a lot of different sports, uh, there's a lot of, you know, testosterone buildup. There's all of that. And you want to do, say, show something, but there was no brawl. Um, Chemo's fight with Hoist was really a hell of a tough fight for Hoist. Yeah, mm -hmm. took him out of the tournament. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, he did. You know, yeah. Uh, so, Bob, I have a question. So, in this time, are you starting to get a lot, a lot of interest from all kinds of fighters all over the place who want to take part of this, or was it hard to find people? Oh no, the, everybody, everywhere I went. Someone would say I, I, there was an agent at CAA in Los Angeles, and he'd say, my, my sensei is wants to be in this. He's got to be in it. You've got to take him. And I'd say, believe me, it means nothing against your sensei. He can't fight at this level. <laughs> and he said, yes, he can. Yes, he can. You got to bring him. And it happened, and I'll bring up his name again. I was going out to Huntington to see Tank Abbott. So I said, I'll tell you what, tomorrow I'm going to Huntington. Let him come with me, and he can roll around with Tank Abbott, and we'll see how he does. I still haven't seen the agent. So, no, nobody <laughs> ever showed up the next day. You know, uh, uh, you know, as I say, I boxed. I can't box with anyone who's a really a world boxer. Um, so, you know, these guys were, we had incredible fighters. We had people all over trying to get in. Now everybody wanted to get in. Now there was more money, although compared to today's money, not a lot, but more money than had ever been in the sport. And everybody wanted to get in and we were making people famous mm -hmm. and everybody sure. wanted to be part of that. Yeah, it's interesting. So at UFC 5, I mean, you bring up Tank Abbott. I mean, obviously, a star is born that day with himself. Um, in your opinion, under, do you think that there was any fights that may not have been any up and up under your direction of the UFC? None. Okay. I give you my word, not one. Were there fights where I looked at and said, this should be easier for Tank? And, and mainly it was for Tank because the fans loved him. It wasn't, we had no interest in him, but the fans wanted to see Tank Abbott. So uh, I could have him beat up or I could, you know, he, 
I used to beg Tank, let somebody train you. <laughs> you know? uh, so, and he, go ahead, go ahead. And he, he was. just wouldn't hear of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he used to say, everybody trains. I go into a bar, I beat everyone up. I'm ready. You know. <laughs> Hey, now, it, it seems like you had a streak for kind of like those bad bar guys, too, because, you you know, you, you, you were kind of friendly with tanks. <clears throat> Andy Anderson's another guy that kind of fits that tough guy mold that I, I think that you have a soft spot in your heart for, too. Is that is that right? Is that fair? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I never would have thought of it as a soft spot in my heart. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I come, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And I started out in a very tough Italian neighborhood and uh, fighting in the street was something that we did all the time. So maybe I felt a closeness to them because of that, I don't know. Once I got to ultimate fighting, I realized I wasn't so tough and I uh, was not looking for any more fighting, but uh, I appreciated that Tank Abbott was willing to go in there with anybody and yeah. um, so, uh-huh. so you had mentioned that you believe that every fight was on the up and up, but there seems to be some questions about the Anthony Macias and Oleg Tektarov fight at UFC five. Yes. What was your opinion of that? I never knew. I, I, I'm, I, there's nothing for me to hide. I give you my honest. No, for sure. Yeah. That's what we're, as we're much talking as about. I knew that was a straightforward fight. Did I hear forever that it wasn't? Yes, I did. But you're asking me from everything I knew it was straightforward. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. That's fair. And so obviously, was a great fighter. Oh, no. hey, you know, we had him on uh, you probably about nine months ago. And he, the things that would come out of his mouth about getting like drugged before the, the Henzo fight and the things that would fly out of his mouth were just so crazy. But then, like, you kind of fact check it. And you're like, you know, he, he might not be he might not be lying to us. <laughs> you know, we had we had a drunk Oleg on an interview, which is fantastic. I might add. I will check that. Yeah. But, you know, um, it, it's these were legendary men doing legendary things at a legendary time. Um, as I said earlier, you know, MMA, you know, once people started figuring out all these things, you had guys who really trained, really worked at it. It was not that much then. These were guys who would go on the road and fight. Dan Severn, I think, for all I know, still does it. But he would go out every week and fight three times for $300. Yeah. Now, let, he would let even drive his opponent there sometimes. <laughs> now, let, let me ask you, Bob, at this point, some other companies started popping up on pay-per-view. I remember Gene LaBelle had an event that uh, did a one-time pay-per-view. Henzo Gracie won a tournament that was also a one-time pay-per-view. Mike mentioned that Mars event, another one-time pay-per-view. But this is competition. Some of them started having rounds, gloves, and things like that. How did you feel when they became a presence? And obviously Peretti's battle cave. Nothing is is so good that it should be the only one you want competition you have to deal with competition competition makes you grow i'll give you your second rolling stone story um we did everything my company did everything the rolling stones did in radio and television and i don't know how or why but we had agreed 
but they would get paid $17,000. Now they were making tens of millions, 50, 60 million. I was paying them 17,000. Mick went out and did a, a solo album and their manager, their lawyer uh, called me up and said, how much will you pay Mick? And I said, we always pay $17,000. And he said, listen, my boy, he's not going to take that. And I said, okay, how long a show do you want to do? Three hours. Now, three hours is fine for the Rolling Stones. Mick now has one album out. I said, so what will he do? Play the album three times? <laughs> <laughs> he said, all right, 17,000, but don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, we worked with people. You work and you try to build up. Um, we wanted, I, I wanted Oleg to be a star. I wanted Mark Coleman to be a star. Mark Coleman was <clears throat> difficult um, because he was so nice in a way. And I would tell him when there's a group of people, I'm going to have some, you'll sign autographs and then I'm going to have someone take you away. You don't want to stay there and you sign every autograph, then you're standing all by yourself. You just at some point have to move away. Um, and you have to work to make somebody a star and work with what they give you. Frank Shamrock was incredible. Ken Shamrock, who should have been so much more, just wasn't. And I, I'd be interested in all of your thoughts on Ken. Um, Ken had the looks, Ken had the physique, and he had knowledge of so many things, but he just didn't go over with the fans. Yeah, he, he, I, I think in the early days, the old, he also became somebody that was trying to play like, hey, I'm making money in Japan and go over there. And you didn't really use him every show like you did Hoist. Like he took shows off, didn't, you know, didn't appear as much really. Well, he was fighting over there as Wayne Shamrock. Yeah. He was here as Ken Shamrock. and But the problem was the fans didn't react to him. And I say this all the time. How the did you gauge that? What's that? How did you gauge that? Because I was a Ken Shamrock fan. You could tell when uh, that somebody has something. And you can't say what it is. But... And I'm with you. I thought Ken should have had a lot more. He was really a more rounded fighter than almost anybody. But he just didn't do it. I think him not going out against her, uh, was it against Harold Howard? Or they sent Harold Howard? I think it was against Harold Howard because Hoist, that's what it was. Hoist Gracie uh, had issues with chemo. They throw the talent against Harold Howard. I count that as a win. For Harold Howard or my dad. And then Harold moves into the finals and Shamrock said, no, you know, I hurt my hand. And that's when Steve Jenham comes in. Right. And I'm not, I'm not sure Ken needed any hands to beat Harold Howard. And um, yeah, I, I, I think maybe something like that may have had him take a hit, but yeah, you know, I always thought he had a bit of star power. Truth be told. He was, but he you know, just I, didn't do it. I think you're right, Bob. I think a lot of people have what they call that it factor, you know, That's and it's, right. uh, and, and 
you'll see it sometimes, you know, Conor McGregor, I was even that, you know, Sean O'Malley guy now. I mean, just something that stands out. And if it's not there, you, you can't they have to be a really good, just grinder, hard-nosed fighter to get people to like him. It's not that uh, same thing. And like you said, maybe he didn't have it. I don't know. A little arrogance. Yeah. You know, we John, that. Per- John Peretti always accused me of liking heavyweights, which I do. Um, and right now, if I said, who is the UFC heavyweight champion? A lot of people don't know. Now, Conor McGregor was beaten by Habib. He was beaten by Poirier. And yet, Conor McGregor is probably the best known UFC star there is. Easy. If you don't know him, he'll tell you who he is. (laughs) That's him. So would you would you have liked to work with Connor? Is that something that you're like, man, I wish I I stuck around or like you think you could make money over that guy? I, I never even gave it a thought. <laughs> Fair enough. So in essence, with growth and influx of participants, there's a lot of personalities. There's a lot of, you know, moving parts at UFC six. Tank Abbott kind of plants a flag behind the scenes and I know they beat up him and his crew beat up Patrick Smith in an elevator at the event afterward this starts to kind of becoming a reoccurring theme um how were you dealing with things of that nature well we've mentioned Tank Abbott a bit a soft spot in my heart Tank Abbott and his crew were going after somebody and I stood in front of them and I said, if you want to get to him, you got to go through me. <laughs> now, I knew they could go through me. They knew they could go through me. But they stopped. And as I say, you have to look and say, at, at some point, this just can't go on. Now, there was another time where Tank was standing and I forget one of the Brazilians tackled him at the after party. It happened. Um as a UFC 12, or 13, UFC 13. So, you know, we tried to keep everything as calm as we could, but you're dealing with fighters and you're dealing with fighters who are really jacked up for this moment. Um, and jacked up is an interesting question because, and I'll go, you know, without naming anybody who used drugs. <laughs> who didn't? Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I think Bare kind of caught in it right now. Like, for instance, at some point, you get big enough, and you're you're dealing with Vikings. Like in a world of combat sports, you're like Bare Knuckle today. You're dealing with the most rugged of individuals. That although they fight for money, that's not their sole purpose. They would fight for free because they just, <laughs> you know, that's what they like to do. And but yes, but then you put money in front of them and it changes a great deal. And that's for anybody and everybody. I, I'm, I'm not putting it on them. Um, you know, uh, the same thing in music, the same thing. You, you take a professor and this college office and more, he goes to that college and he started out not caring about money. Money, yeah. you know. So. Another Tank Abbott, little side note, UFC 8 at the venue, Tank Abbott and Alan Goez decides to get into the face of Tank Abbott. And if you look at Tank Abbott's crew, it's Tito Ortiz, Eddie Ruiz, you know, Tiki, 
Eddie Ruiz, if you, all you have to do is look at his picture and he competed in Abu Dhabi. So, you know, he's like a legit jujitsu guy. Eddie Ruiz is a rough character, rough, much rougher than tank. And there was a huge brawl at UFC eight. What could you tell us about that? Uh, just what you said. I'm sorry. I wish I could shed more light. There was this huge brawl, brawl, and he attacked Tank, and then there was all these guys fighting, and uh, myself, and I, I, you know, I don't remember who else at that point, but we got in there to break people up, but the fight just kept going. <laughs> yeah. Now there was some there was some talk on on the pay per view shows that Tank was suspended for yes. some of these actions and stuff. W was that something that was just for the TV audience, or did you actually enact a suspension for him? Like, we enacted him. a suspension, and, I mean, there were times we fined fighters, times we took part of their uh, salaries, not salaries, uh, their winnings away from them, purses, thank you, away from them. Um, you know, we were really working very hard because we had so much criticism and so much spotlight on us, we were working very hard to keep this away from the sport as much as we possibly could. So I, who I, I levied? Who, wait, one, 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 I apologize, Mary. Let me just expand on that if you don't mind. Um, who levied the suspension on Tank, and how did that conversation go? I'm sure it was over the phone. I wouldn't do that in person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean to Tank? Let yes. me tell you. There are a lot of smart guys that were involved. Tank is one of the smartest. He's a painter. I believe that. His father is a college professor. His sister uh, runs a very big uh, internet company. Um, he's a very smart guy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, I heard... Did he I drink too much? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I heard a rumor that you mentioned that you suspect uh, find people and things like that, that after the Andy Anderson, John Hess fight, uh, Miguel, because, you're going up like four. We got that. We got it. Miguel, Miguel wants to eat the hors d'oeuvre. Miguel, we got it. Let's just go on. I know, I know, but that's, listen, Andy Anderson, let, let's just put this out there right now. Andy Anderson might be the greatest UFC thing that ever happened. And he only fought one time. It's so interesting. We can do about 45 minutes just on him. Miguel, <laughs> let me just work our way there because Andy oh, Anderson oh, oh. It is a forgotten footnote that needs to be explored. UFC 12, you. UFC 12, you guys plan to go to upstate New York. Political oh, pressure is yeah. coming down. John Peretti decides to do, I think it's Battlecade in New York. And in essence, your event gets canceled and you guys have to move to Alabama. When did you kind of have the understanding that event would have to switch venues? Because it happened that way. It's a bit of a long story. We're in. Um, I, I hired a, um, a firm to represent me up in Albany. And we went up to Albany and we met with all the lawmakers that we wanted to come to New York and do the UFC. And uh, unfortunately, the Speaker of the Senate and the head of the House both went to prison for other things. But <laughs> I had agreed that I would give, I had horses, I'd give horses, I'd do all these things. And we were approved to fight in New York. Now, 
rather than going downstate, I thought by going upstate where they need money, uh, we go to Buffalo and do it in Buffalo, which is certainly out of the media's way, and we could do a nice event. And I was working with Mayor Giuliani. I was on the committee to reelect uh, Rudy. I didn't like Rudy, but I was on the committee because I needed him uh, for New York. We're having a breakfast for Rudy. And that morning in the New York Times, John Peretti, and I forget he had a partner, uh, Kaufman or a name like that. Uh, they were pictured in the New York Times, John Peretti and Kaufman, let's say. And I go in and I sit down at the table and Rudy's attorney turns to me and he says, we're on opposite sides now. We can't talk. Wow. What are you talking about? What are we on opposite sides? He said, I said, we can't talk. Wow. I, I got up and I left. I called my attorney. I said, call their attorney. I don't know what this is about. He said, you, the guy says, you were on the front page, you're doing a show in New York, and you never said anything to Rudy. I said, look at that page. That's not me. They had the first time ever where you can't change a law without 60 days notice, unless there's an emergency. They brought me into court in New York that there was an emergency, someone could get killed. But uh, I'm skipping ahead. I get a call from the New York Times. You've been banned from New York. What do you say about it? I said, I'm not banned. He said, yes, we got a thing from uh, the Athletic Commission. You're banned. I said, if I was banned, they'd have to tell me. I then get a call from the New York Post. Now that you're banned in New York, what? then I said, okay. I called the <laughs> Times back. I said, I'll give you an exclusive Show me what they did. They wrote out a whole new set of rules without ever telling us. I mean, we're the only ones there. We went into court and um, in court, they wanted headgear. They wanted it to be in a boxing ring. Big John said, if you have headgear, someone can grab it and pull somebody, break someone's neck. If it's in a boxing ring, you're gonna fall through the ropes. You're gonna fall on the floor. The judge ruled that it's someone's life is in danger. So therefore, for the first time ever in the history of New York State, they're going to make a rule that it's an emergency rule to save someone's life. We are banned from New York State. Wow. Do, do you blame John Freddy for that? He didn't he say he blamed Bob Myrowitz. He was, he's there and it says John Peretti. And it was the other guy, too. He had a partner. I blame Rudy Giuliani. Wasn't me. There's two people pictured and their names. That's not me. It doesn't take a lot of work to read someone's name. I know you're Mike Davis. I know you're Chris Light. It's light, little. It's right there. And um, I can do it. He could have done it. He didn't take the time. He just wanted to do what he did. So now we're out of New York and we're looking where can we go and we okay, find okay, but how too far between the actual event taking place and these legal proceedings, do you start kind of planning a, like a pivot, you know, to a different city, like a Justin case? Uh, not as soon as we should have. Wow. 
So now we're in uh, Dothan, Alabama, and we got to get all our stuff down. So everybody is doing everything. I had bought everybody these L.L. Bean uh, coats, you know, for Buffalo, that we'd all be up in Buffalo, and everyone would have these great coats from L.L. Bean. Now we're in Dothan, Alabama. Um, <laughs> I got to fly everything down. So I was trying to get jets with big enough cargo doors that our stuff could fit into them. Then we got all that. And then it turned out the airport nearest Dothan, those jets couldn't land in. So I had oh. to get another place for them to land. Then I had to get um, trucks that could take the stuff from the airport to Dothan. By the time I got to Dothan, it was like half an hour to show. And oh. they're painting the steps. I said, you can't paint them. They're not gonna dry in time. If people get stuck, you can't paint them. Um, and we gave away the tickets. It was for free. We had a full crowd. Um, and it all, you know, all who were some out. of the heroes that really helped pull that off? Because I'll tell you what, like what you guys did that day. I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, UFC, you know, 12, I, I'm a pretty young guy. And I just remember people being flown from weigh-ins to Alabama and it just, it was a huge flex on your end, able to pull that off. I think 99% of companies just would have canceled. We never did. Um, we had all sorts of things that happened. Uh, being in court every time was no thrill. Uh, when we did the show in Puerto Rico, uh, I was in court every day. And it was, you know, when we came out of court, there would be hundreds and hundreds of people standing there that you had to fight your way through to get through. Um, everybody was on the beach enjoying themselves. It was a real fight the whole time. So, so, so when you were, I have a question. If you, when you were kicked out of New York, basically, and you, were you worried, Hey, if we don't get this fight off, this might be it. Were you, was that ever a thought? Like we have to get this fight to happen. Or are we going to be done? Was that ever a worry? That's a precedent. Yeah. Um, actually, I was asked that on the, when I was, uh, on the witness stand, if you don't get this fight, will you go bankrupt? And, uh, I said, no, but I mean, it was really, this was all my money. And I'm happy to say that I made a good deal of money, but I'm sorry to say I didn't have Fertitta money, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, there's tears this game, man. And, and yeah. I've often said, you know, <laughs> Levertita's invested $40 million. Yeah. Can, can, I ask you, Bob, uh, can I ask you, at the end of the day, the Dothan move, you, you had to write a check, what, what, 200000 Like, how much was that move from New York uh, at the end of the day, like, in your head? You know, it was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, that's a, yeah, unbelievable. That's and and he flew it. the cage down. He flew the cage down. Yes, and the ring car girls. Everything. All the equipment. And, and it all had to go into a jet that had big enough cargo doors. And then it turned out those jets were too big to land there. So then we had to hire <laughs> trucks to take them. From Birmingham to Dothan. Yep. <laughs> Let me ask you... Uh, and you mentioned Big John and, and you, you know, how he won you over early. I know that uh, Elaine McCarthy did a lot of the phone call logistic work for many UFCs. Was she aboard for this one? Was she I'm on gonna, the phone? You know, 
Interesting that you said that, Miguel. I was just going to say Elaine was crucial in this. I mean, so many small things, getting everybody toothbrushes, getting everybody, you know, little things that have to be taken care of, she did. Um, it was just, I'm ha I believe, and I'm happy to say it, that all of us had a very, a, a great close working relationship and we all worked hard together. We believed in what we were doing. Everybody was really so against it and we believed in it. So like you're talking about court dates and court dates that's wearing on you. You're not doing events, you know, every, every weekend. Why wouldn't you just base yourself out of like Alabama, a place that obviously welcomes you? Well, we did do a lot of shows down in um, uh, Georgia. Mississippi. And Georgia. Mississippi. Yeah. Where, you know, with the casinos down there. Uh, Biloxi. Yep. So we did a bunch of shows down there with the casinos. And again, the first time we went, I've done shows with casinos where they pay you, you give them some tickets, and they're thrilled to give the tickets to their high rollers. We said, we'll give you tickets. They said, our people wouldn't want those tickets. Oh, what? Okay. Wow. <laughs> so wow. we go in, and wow. the night before, they call me up and say, we need tickets. Everyone <laughs> wants them. I said, well, it's too late. You know, I offered you tickets, and you didn't want them. They said, we can talk to the fire department. We'll get you extra seats. Cool. Okay, but now you got to buy them from me. Good Before I was going to give them to you. You now want them. Now you buy them, which they did. Oh, you played it like that, huh? Oh, Only fair. I mean, I offered. It's not like I was trying to give them a hard time. They didn't want them. Not only did they not want them, but they were nasty about what I was doing. Our people wouldn't want them? Okay. Okay, but how far out? Was it like at weigh-ins? Did you guys start negotiating this? Or was this plan the negotiated? The extra like seats? No, the extra seats. No, no. The venue itself. Like the extra venue in case New York folded. Oh, Dothan? No. Dothan was like last minute. We did I not can't even believe that. you found a venue. Okay. All right. Yeah. We found yeah. a venue that would take us that... We didn't sell tickets, so we gave away free tickets. It cost me a bloody fortune to do, no revenue. Uh, we were wow. then fighting with cable companies who kept dropping us. Oh. You now, know. Uh, can I bring up the cable issues? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, I, I remember uh, one of the famous cable problems was that UFC 7 with Ruas and Varlins in the final. That cut off. And I don't know if you had a... Uh, issue refunds to some people or, or anything like that? I was wondering if you recall that. It's a very interesting situation. So what happened is that the cable company cut us off. And somebody called the cable company asking for a refund. I, I it, it, If memory serves, that was $19. Yeah. They refused to give that person a refund. Then somebody brought a class action and then the cable company wanted me to pay $700,000 to settle <laughs> this. I said, I'll give you $19.99. That's what the person wanted. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's what I'll give you. 
But so what? I went to court again. I had a rich lawyer by then. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, and, uh, yeah. That's that's unfortunate. Now I think an even worse pay per view problem for you was. Um, I think it happened two years in a row. At least I think I witnessed it two years in a row. You you had set up uh, like a New Year's Eve like marathon event where like you had saved some alternate fights to put on the event. And there were areas where that show started and it cut off and didn't show it. Do you, do you recall that one? The the New Year's Eve uh, offerings that, that didn't go no, away? No, I don't. I don't. That I don't. Oh, okay. Okay. Hopefully I was away for New Year's Eve and having a good time. <laughs> oh, well, good for you. <laughs> you deserve and it. And as I have said, if I had the $40 million that Fredita's put in, I'd have a great place in St. Bart's. So. <laughs> Fair enough. UFC 13 after party. Tank Abbott and Mark Coleman versus Team Brazil. Um, the rumor, or we've been told that you were in the middle of that fray as well. Um, you know, I just had to be. I could not allow all that we had worked for, all that we were doing, to be ruined by these kind of actions. So you had to stop it, and you had to step in. And... Um, you know, that was all a long time ago. I thought it was tougher. You know, I'm well, noticing a common theme here, and every time it seems to be Tank Abbott's name coming up, were you ever, like, having talked with him or being like, Tank, you got to quit causing problems? Or was that, was that ever a thing, or was Tank just going to be Tank no matter what? No, I was always saying, Tank, you got to go into real training. Uh, <laughs> so never mind this nonsense you, you know, need to really train <laughs> learn how to fight better okay. i'm going to tell you that tank that that uh i'm sorry now i can't think of his name uh a great lighter weight fighter i mean jerry bolander who jerry bolander no um a great fighter but these guys were all tough you know it wasn't just tank they were all tough uh, somebody said it earlier, would they fight for free? Yeah, they would. They like to fight. And um, being out in the street made them very comfortable. And they were very tough, literally tough. I look at now, Conor McGregor throwing a chair at a bus. Is that a stunt or is that tough? I don't know. What do you think? That's fair. Yeah, I think it's fair. That's a fair assessment. I agree. Yeah. All right. So First, what are your feelings about Mark Coleman? Uh, I have great feelings for Mark Coleman. Um, you know, he does it on his website, so I'm not saying anything out of school. The fact that he's working on being sober, I think that's so wonderful. Mark Coleman was a legitimate, legitimate champion i mean he, he was in the olympics this is a great great fighter what we were trying to do is get great athletes into it so that people didn't think these were a bunch of thugs but this is come on mark coleman is not a thug did you like working with him yes okay do you think that maybe the table was tilted against him at all from like the ufc perspective in what way like, for instance, um, Coleman beat Stan Severn at UFC 12. Any post-fight speech, you guys mentioned uh, here, Tank Abbott. Or, uh, hold up. You guys mentioned Tank Abbott, Ken Shamrock, and Don Fry. You know, as potential opponents, 
Coleman, of course, says, I accept anybody that you guys put in front of me. And rather than take up the names that the UFC has a vested interest in because you guys have put money into building them up, as you have said earlier, you bring in a 500 fighter from rings named Maurice Smith. We had zero UFC fights in a title bout. So he goes from no one knows who he is into a title fight with Coleman. Do you think Coleman did not get, you know, was not built up, pushed once he got to where he should have been? He knows where I'm going with this. So in essence, what, if, you, if you kind of look at the way things have handled, one, he loses to Maurice Smith. And, you know, I mean, he freely admits his partying, hanging out in Brazil, you know, got the best of him. But for Maurice Smith to kind of be there was a little surprising. But also, like, was it surprising? Look, wait, wait. Do you think it was surprising he won? That Maurice Smith won? Yes. I think it was surprising. Yeah. As a fan, it was. No, you know, no. I think a, a trained it, you Coleman, thought it was surprising wins. that he was there. But it turns out you were wrong because not only was he there, he won. I agree. Now, with Coleman's fight against Pete Williams, You'll notice Big John McCarthy really kind of staying on Coleman in regards to rules about grabbing the fence. And there's like two or three different times where Mark is taking Pete down and Pete is clawing on the fence. And at one point, it's almost like using Pete as a slingshot to get off of the fence to take him down. And there's no words from John McCarthy warning Pete Williams. You know, that's something you could ask John McCarthy. Was I shocked? Were you shocked when Pete Williams knocked out uh, Mark? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Totally sure. shocking. Now, I, yeah. I, I want to add, add one thing, Bob. Just And that was part of the beauty of the early days of the UFC. Yeah. You had all these guys coming in, all this excitement. You didn't know what would happen. One one of the things that's playing off here, I think around this time, Peretti starts to become a UFC employee. Um, UFC fifteen and, is and official. To, yeah. To make you know, Maurice Smith didn't really just come out of nowhere. He had appeared yeah. on Peretti's show and knocked out Conan Silvera, which was another match he walked into against a grappler. Everybody thought the grappler would have an easy time, and he defeated Conan. You know, was Peretti influencing some of the matchmaking, or were you watching his show and you know? No, taking Peretti was influencing the matchmaking. Okay. Okay. So okay. he was he bought Mo, he, he 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 took you Maurice Smith, so to speak. You know, I I had great confidence in Peretti as a matchmaker. Peretti, for all that he is and was and still is, was a real diehard fan of what we were doing and was working very hard to make it better. Did you bring Peretti in to kind of take leverage away from Art Davey? Uh, I've never thought of it that way. I thought we needed somebody really good at it. And I thought Peretti was good at it. And I thought his heart was, uh, you know, to say his heart, that's a stupid expression. I thought that his mind was really in the right place for what we wanted to do, that he would bring in great fighters into the UFC, which I think he did. He did a great job, for sure. And he had a lot of personality clashes with people. You That didn't bother you at all, huh? 
I still like him. Now, now let me ask you, when Peretti, the transition from Art Davey to John Peretti, you know, Art Davey, obviously a, a mature man. John Peretti was also mature. You had Joe Silva kind of hanging around as an intern. And, uh, you know, I think, I think the, the story goes that he started showing up and then at some point you started paying him $500 per show as a consultant fee and that he was in your ear. Was he, was he not ready for the UFC matchmaker job or where did he fit in for that? Um, I am happy to say that there are a lot of people who we discovered and who we built up and he was one of them. And, um, there were quite a few people who came on board who really did good work. There were things going on in the background. I had someone who worked for me for uh, many years who was working as the produ producer, Michael Pilot, And uh, then uh, somebody brought in someone else. And then we brought, we kept changing producers, trying to make the show better. Peretti was very good at what he was supposed to do. And he stayed in his corner. He wasn't trying to get in anybody else's way or do anything. He wanted to be a matchmaker, and he was a good one. Um, Joe was really very knowledgeable, and he went on to become a very, very important part of what they were doing. But I think with Peretti, we had good fights. Yeah. Okay. I agree. I mean, there's no arguing that. Absolutely. You're 100% correct. Um, you guys start kind of expanding outside of normal comfort zones. And on UFC 16, you guys end up in Japan. Now, Japan, obviously, everyone knows about Pride FC, how it was just kind of rife with corruption and Yakuza. Did you guys have any dealings with the Yakuza or any, any issues with them at this event? Not that I know of, no. We had... Uh... I had issues with pride, um, but <laughs> it was, uh, I was going over there and this friend of mine in New York said, oh, my cousin is a doctor in Japan. I said, oh, great. We are going to need a doctor. And I show up and there's this man in the silliest bow tie with really weird hair. And I said, excuse me, this is not <laughs> public space. He said, oh, no, I'm whatever the, his name was. I'm his cousin, and I'm the doctor. Now, the entire venue, the entire time the, fight was taking, the fights were taking place, this man sat there reading a book. Never looked up, just sat there reading a book, and then went home. Um, <laughs> I paid him. There was really, other than one incident with um, Pride, there was really nothing. Okay, so in essence, on the, on, on the undercard, you've got Conan Silvera fighting uh, Sakuraba. And Silvera wins the fight, but there's a little bit of controversy in regards to the stoppage. And the fight happens a second time that night. What can you recall in regards to the dealings and ongoings in regards to that situation? A lot of people, including me, thought that Sakuraba should not have been stopped. Okay. Um, I think it's a little it, odd that you do the rematch that night, though. Yes. 
What well, was okay. that? Well, it is odd, but I think it was the right thing to do, and I think it worked out the right way. <laughs> so, Miguel, we had Conan Silvera on. It's one of our first few interviews. And in essence, he said, yeah, I win the fight. I'm in the locker room. People are knocking on my door, informing me that I'm fighting again. I see these people with tattoos everywhere and suits. And I said to myself, yeah, I think it's it's probably the right thing for me to do. You know, they're, they're correct. I don't want there to was not Honestly, there was none of that. I think it was the right thing to do. Okay. And I think, you know, Sakuraba certainly proved himself afterwards to be great. Um, the Did you have any meddling, any meddling in regards to the event, any shakedowns in regards none. to... Really? None. At all. None. Yeah. Did you have a... You have to have somebody on the ground, though, to, like, get the venue and stuff. Like, who was your Jap... Did you have a Japanese representative who was already in the business? Or no, were I you able to pull it off? I had a Japanese partner who was not in the business. I see. Okay. Uh, I went over. I had done a lot of work in Japan in the music business, and... Actually, I had just done a big thing a, uh, for Warner Brothers. I had produced something called The History of Rock and Roll. And the, see, the videos came out. And it, I thought it was so funny that here's all. I can't tell you how much money Warner Brothers gave me to produce this. <laughs> and here's the UFC way out selling <laughs> this huge, expensive set of music. Uh, <laughs> But I had been to Japan quite a bit. I dealt okay. with Japan a lot, and I knew the venues. And um, we had, relatively speaking, a smooth go there. Okay. okay. UFC 24, Kevin Randleman, Pedro Hizzo is your main event. Pay, uh, Kevin Randleman backstage is jumping up and down and I think trips on some pipes and gets knocked unconscious. Bring us through like that event like from your perspective two things several things about that event a i wasn't there i was on a plane and the plane uh had to be instead of going i think it was in texas we went somewhere else and i was calling to see what could be done kevin randleman was bouncing up and down our doctor richard istrico happened to be standing behind him Kevin Randleman, while he's bouncing up and down, tripped and fell and hit his head. When he fell and hit his head, he vomited. <sighs> Richard Istrico said, I'm sorry. That's a sign of concussion. I can't allow him to fight. He can get in an ambulance right now. I'll get him right to a hospital and we'll check him out. But I can't at this moment give him permission to fight. They got him to the hospital and the hospital wouldn't give him permission to fight. Dead on, you know, this was it. Kevin Randleman then sued the venue himself and represented himself in the lawsuit, which I can tell you all, if you're ever sued, don't represent yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sorry to say, oh, not sorry to say, he lost that case. He he was there. He was jumping up and down, tripped, fell down, hit his head, vomited, went to the hospital. They wouldn't let him fight. Hmm. And again, if you're trying to do, you know, there's a big thing now with CTE. Uh, and you're trying to do things to keep people healthy. Yep. 
Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. So UFC 24, um, that, that's, I mean, it was, did you guys also have pay-per-view issues with people trying to get refunds with that as well? No, I think with that one, we just had, uh, and I'm not sure if it was 24, but um, Cablevision here in New York, the night before, canceled us. And well, is this political pressure? Remember. Where's this pressure coming from? I mean, obviously your events are selling. So what is there? No their one's purpose? getting hurt. No one is getting hurt. Was this just to try to get a bigger piece of the pie from you? No, I think I, I believe that people just didn't understand and they didn't want to have to take the time to understand. And I don't know if we're ever going to get to it, but a lot of that had to do with John McCain. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are your feelings about John McCain today? Um, he's a dead, he's passed away. And so I can't say anything about him that he can't respond to. I will say that when he ran for president, he sent me a note thanking me for not mentioning anything about how badly he had done with the UFC. So I'll, he cost me maybe $30 million, but I'll give him credit that he sent me a note. Uh, you think, who, who do you think was pushing him or urging him to go down this path with you? I, I really don't, you know, because then I'm just making it up. And okay. um, Do you think there was maybe an outside source that was maybe making him do this or encouraging him to do this? Or do you think this was on his own? Do you know what his wife, you know, his wife was a very wealthy woman. She's an Anheuser-Busch Harris, I, I think. She was a what? Anheuser-Busch? Yeah. Budweiser. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Just coincidence, I'm sure. <laughs> Coincidence. Yeah. McCain. Uh... <sighs> okay. But he sent letters to every attorney general in every state not to run the UFC. Yeah. Now, as you had stated, we can say a whole bunch of things and, you know, he can't respond. I, I will say what I think is not fair that, that is written about him is that people give him credit for changing the UFC to make it palatable for today's, like, sports fan. And any, let me tell you, anybody, anybody that writes an article like that not only is full of shit, but like these, oh, you know, they're part of the problem because that couldn't be further from the truth. Virtually, there are more weight classes, but other than that, the same rules we had are exactly what is in effect now. Um, John, again, not speaking badly about the dead, but it, it, watch, the, um, watch me on television with him. He just didn't know what he was talking about. Just didn't know. And if I think they were lazy, uh, that Rudy Giuliani was lazy not to read the Times and see whose name was in it. He had all these things and he never looked at it. He didn't know what this was about at all. Who else was in the running to purchase the UFC? Uh, I can't remember. There was another company, but I think they were really working with the Fertitas, but I don't remember his name. 
Now, did, now we can do Andy Anderson. We're do her right here. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, not yet. One more. No, no, make it, make up. We're going to close with Andy Anderson. But okay, so for instance, you guys go in front of the Nevada Athletic Commission uh, in regards to being sanctioned there. Obviously, it gets denied, and then one of its no, members. It's never denied. Okay, what was? So they keep just uh, doing extensions and that sort of thing. Like, hey, we'll pick it up next meeting. That kind of. I stuff? had hired a um, what do you call it? Someone who uh, a lobbyist. Lobbyist, thank you. I'd hired a lobbyist, a very big time, well-known lobbyist in um, Las Vegas who charged me a bloody freaking fortune. And um, we had everything set. And I flew in and we're going to go before the Athletic Commission the next morning. I flew in John McCarthy, Richard Istrico, an attorney, a boxing attorney. I flew in all these people to testify in front of the committee. I get there and my um, lobbyist isn't there. I call this office, where the hell is he? I paid him a lot of money, you know. They said, he's on a plane. Okay, uh, you know, we go out to dinner, everyone wants to celebrate. I said, no, there's nothing to celebrate. Tomorrow we'll celebrate. So I went up to my room relatively early. I go to sleep, midnight, my phone rings. And it's this lobbyist. He said, I just found out one of the commissioners changed his mind. Oh. Cancel the meeting with the commission. That way you won't be turned down and I can do stuff for you. Now this is wow. midnight. I call my lawyer. I say, you know, I just got this call. Holy shit. The shakedown. Yeah. So we canceled the meeting. We never went before the board, so we were never turned down. We would never refuse permission. But at that point, I said, you know, that's it. <laughs> Enough's enough. Um, and do you know who the, the name of that member would have been that changed his mind? Yes, I do. <laughs> Can we I say do. it or, or no? No. Okay, let's not say it. So now... Let's just say there's a member on that board. And it turns out that they want to negotiate your business, you know, purchasing your business with you. Um, how does that sit with you? It's even funnier if I tell you really what happened. Uh, when I I, I can't really mention names, so I can't. But it's not. We're not going to someday. Someday we'll be in a bar, and I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> can, can you give uh, us like a, a rough summary, just to kind of put us in a ballpark? No names at all. It's really hard without the names. Well, uh, well let, let me let me see. Let the, can we take it back a step? Because sure. we had on uh, some of Dan Severn's handlers. And they mentioned that you had a conversation with Dan about potentially buying the UFC. And then Art Davey mentioned that Andy Anderson had put together a group in Texas that, that talked about doing the and UFC. Dan Lambert. And, and then Dan Lambert maybe perhaps was Peretti's uh, partner. So there were other people approaching no, you. No, none of that's about. true. Dan Lambert, yes. The others, Andy Anderson, no. Dan Severn, no. 
Um, but what happened is I got a fax, if you can remember faxes. Yes. And it was from somebody who at that point was managing Tito Ortiz. Okay. And, that if, and if you can remember faxes, on the top, it would usually say whose office it came from. That was just how it worked. Yeah. And this manager of Tito Ortiz sent me this thing. He knows somebody would be willing to buy it. And it came from the office of somebody who had been on the board. So I said, let me guess, see if I can guess who it is. And he was amazed that I guess. And uh, at that point, really, I wanted out. And, it broke uh, you, huh? Finally. I just, I really didn't want to do it anymore. Um, it was, okay. I was fighting everybody. I was in court all the time. I was fighting the cable operators who had all been my friends, fighting cable and fighting, you know, every place I go, I'm in court. <clears throat> and, you know, your budget keeps shrinking. And so you're doing less and less shows rather than bigger and better shows. It's really very... Um, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. So I was very happy to sell. Um, I wasn't, I, I don't feel like I was taken advantage of. I wanted to sell. I sold. I was happy. That's Still it. am. You know, I don't think, I, I didn't have the kind of money the Fertitas did to do what they did. And to his credit, Dana White was the perfect person for them. And he's really, like him or don't like him, he did a great job with it. Oh, for sure. For sure. He's done a phenomenal job. I admire him. Like people, you know, try to dump on him. Let me tell you something. What that guy did, he's a generational promoter. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yes, he really is. Yeah. And like it or not, I mean, he doesn't fall in love with fighters. No, no, but he's he also gives you the impression that he's a bring your lunch to work guy so he's not afraid to do the heavy lifting himself you know like it's just he's not above it but he doesn't have to do it i i i've got a world of respect for that man i i, I have really a world do. of respect for what he has done yeah and he's just the right man at the right time in the right place so. and he understood his role and he matured like he saw him mature into his role like that's not an easy position you know to, had, for a learning it took them 10 years to get it together yeah now that's a long time and yeah. people seem to forget that they didn't change it overnight it was a 10-year span till they got it right but to everyone's credit to Fertitta, to dana they all stayed with it and i'll tell you this i don't care how much money you have some point you say 40 million dollars what am i doing but they yeah. invested that into it and they kept going. Yeah. So. Yeah. So Andy Anderson, Miguel's been fighting at the bit. Mm-hmm. He's <laughs> a character in mixed martial arts. You know, he fought John Hess um, one time at the UFC five. Um, he wore a great give us your impression of Andy to start the conversation. Uh, Andy is a very smart guy. And he's a legitimately really tough guy. And he's a legitimately really good fighter. He's made a ton of money. He now, unfortunately, is, you know, incarcerated in a really tough case. 
And if anybody has a chance to ever read what happened, it does seem very unfair. He was and is a complete character and um, a smart man. Okay. So in the beginning, Andy Anderson could be seen outside the ring. Um, two, three, and four, UFC's two, three, and four, handling the ring card girls. He had a whole bunch of topless steakhouses throughout the state of Texas. And he fought John Hess in one of the filthiest fights in UFC history where yeah. he was on the receiving end of many eye gouges. Yes. Okay. What was your conversations like after that fight with him? Because he had to have been, like his ego had to have been bruised a little bit. Andy was a very interesting man. Uh, and he could talk about that uh, as though it had happened to somebody else. And he could say, you know, it wasn't fair. It was this, it was that. We could have done this. Here's what I should have done. And he, that's how he would talk about it. He wasn't, uh, I was cheated. Uh, and he was cheated, you know. But he was very straightforward about it. He had made all this money with his topless places. Um, he was also appeared to be kind of gunning to put himself in a position to be competition with the UFC as well. Now, I don't know if he financially could have backed, you know, that, that statement, but he certainly kind of put feelers out there to where he'd be interested to compete with you guys. Would you agree with that? I think a lot of people thought they could. I think a lot of people felt, what the hell was I doing there? I don't know martial arts, and they do. Um, they didn't realize that this was about doing a program. And you had to do it. You had to know how to produce it. You had to know where you were going, what you wanted to do. Um, it is my ability to see the end. Um, and so when I do something, I'm working on a project now, I know where it's going to go. Um, when I would produce music, I knew where I wanted it to go. I wasn't a musician. And, and yet the Rolling Stones, the Who, uh, Bruce Springsteen, U2, Patti Smith, uh, Queen Latifah, all let me do their music. Hmm. So with Andy... He became so influential that he kind of drew, he pulled Art Davey away from the UFC. Am I correct that on that? Art Davey's story. That's not true. What happened is Horian and Art were partners and I made them a partner with me. And it reached a point where that partnership wasn't working and I bought them both out. Okay. There was no Andy Anderson involved. This was me. This is how we're going to do it. I told them. And then you just have to agree on a price. So may I ask the reasoning behind your split with art? There was no split with art. It was Orion and art. They were a team. Okay. okay. And I had given them a partnership and it reached a point where what they were doing wasn't equal to their share in the partnership. So Horan was a partner deep into, like, well beyond when Hoist was there. Like, he was no longer even providing you a fighter. That's correct. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and, I can and, see that. And now, I'm sorry if I, I... I heard 
a rumor that with John Hess and Andy Anderson, and I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but in that fight because of the eye gouging that you actually took Hess's check and gave it to Andy as well. Is that is there some truth to that story? I don't remember that. Okay, okay, that's fair. Okay. Thing. Well, I am of the opinion that both what yourself, Corian, Art Davy, what you guys did for us as fans of the sport, it's just you've caused me a divorce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have, you know, had to bond fighters out of prison. Mm-hmm. I've had, you know, strange dealings that I had to explain to people at work when I was in law enforcement. Um, I, I will tell you, you know, Mr. Meyerwitz, I, I sincerely appreciate your time. And I cannot explain to you how important this conversation is to me and dealing with the person that created something that may have ruined my life, but I will not say that. I will say that, you know, it really means a lot to me. Thank you so much, man. It is very much my pleasure. And uh, honestly, I really don't do these because I don't look to insult anyone, infer anything about anyone. And as you both know, there are so many stories that do go around, you know, who created the octagon, you know, and anyone who could claim it. I happen to be there. I know who did it. Um, It wasn't me. Um, I know who did it. I know who created the UFC. I know everything that happened. Um, But I don't like to do the interviews. But this was a real pleasure. And if I spoke too much, I apologize to you. Oh, no. Yeah, but I haven't spoken a lot about it. So, <laughs> no, it's a, it, it definitely is a pleasure. I, I, I want to tell the people out there that I noticed Mr. Meyerwitz was actually checking out some of our podcasts with some of the older guys and that he yes. had commented and stuff. And that's why I felt comfortable approaching him because he really is a mystical, magical figure. And to be able to do this was a real treat and just, you know, for you to tolerate our nerdy questions and, uh, you know, with the same class that you've handled yourself throughout your life in this sport. Thank you very much, man. Thank you so much for helping us. Thank you very much. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Meyerowitz. Have a good night, man. Everyone be well. Another Lights Out podcast in the books, Mike. Bob Meyerowitz has taken a deep dive and man, I'm stoked. I, I didn't want him to leave. All right. This might be a historic interview for us. It really is. Like, if you really think about it, you know, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't switch studios. This is like being recorded the day before or day after. I haven't slept. I, Miguel, after that interview, I was so high because of the content that that we were able to just kind of like pull out of him that, uh, I had, I didn't sleep, man. Like I was, I was up to like two, three a.m. Just like just going over the interview in my head. Um, Myrowitz, incredibly calculated, ladies and gentlemen. You got to see what a high-end attorney that would cost, you know, a thou- couple thousand dollars an hour. How they would answer questions because he was very calculated. Um, the way he addressed Art Davy, like when he was saying, "Well, I know what people were saying behind my back." You know, I'm not a fight guy. I don't, I don't know anything about the business. He was talking about Art Davey there, you know, and you, I, I got that assumption based on the fact that when he said, very happy I sold the UFC, Horian and I are still friends to this day. Essentially what happened, in my opinion, my assumption is that the negotiation for the sale of the UFC was taking place when John Peretti got brought in. 
when I had mentioned to him, was that to kind of take power away from Mark Davey? He said, well, I never really thought of it that way. They couldn't, that answer was, couldn't have been further from the truth. In essence, that's when the negotiation started. He needed to get them out so he could help himself and recoup some of the money that he had lost on his way out. It appears without seeing any of the contract that there was probably a perpetuity clause in it regards to um, you know licensing and fees that he would get and he's very happy with them which is the reason he doesn't mind saying yeah I sold the business for x amount of dollars even though it's worth 200 times that you know today I think it's because of the deal he cut like I think he's he's a savage businessman that uh, couldn't get pushed around and um, did very well for himself. And that makes me happy. Yeah, I agree. I think the UFC, I, I, I think that he did have a passion for it or else he wouldn't have toiled for eight years and he was alone. And, you know, when you think of guys like that, like, you know, Dan Lambert, uh, the Fertitas, uh, you know, the Sheik of Abu Dhabi and stuff, it's guys with money and guys with a, with a combination of a passion. And if you think about it, that's the company Meyer Woods is actually a pioneer for those guys. You know what I mean? Because he was the actual first guy who wrote checks because he believed in the fights. And that really does say it all. And he, you know, him coming aboard, him still listening to podcasts now and stuff like that. I think it's interesting. And uh, one thing I'll admit, a, a lack of knowledge on my part, is you, you, in the UFC circles, we've heard the rumors that Meyerowitz was a pay-per-view person and the big act he had was New Kids on the Block. And I'm sure that everybody's heard that that group associated with him. Yeah. Which is, well, was a very big act, right? But he dropped some, you know, the Rolling Stones, the Who, U2, Bruce Springsteen. That's, you know... Three like decades, 40 worth. years. Yeah, that's, that's like 40 three, years. Four, three, yeah. third, I was going to say three decades, but you're probably right. Four decades of rock and roll's top guys. You know what I mean? So you two, especially, I remember being a box office. the Stones. I mean, these are box office, different level than other stuff. So we had a real businessman, a real dude. I noticed that in the beginning of the interview. He got left. He was alone. It's like he didn't have a friend helping him there. Everybody else under him was playing little, basically, you know, little games of, hey, we're the fighters, we're the matchmakers, and this, that, and the other thing. And he had the business end of it to hold up by himself. And it's unbelievably lasted eight years. I, I, I can't imagine how much you the made man me sad. actually suffered. <laughs> Did you do you know made me sad when he said, yeah, when you guys were gaining your passion from it and really, you know, getting into it, he's like, I was in court. I was in court. He's like, I was fighting legal battles and dealing just with just cleaning up messes. Like that actually, that made me really sad, man. Like this sport is, Miguel, you and I, you're from New York, a Chilean from New York, living in Costa Rica. Yeah, I'm a South side of Chicago guy. Chris is in Indianapolis. We all found each other and formed like a, an honest friendship with one another because of the sport. We wouldn't have run into each other without it. Yeah, it's it, you know the, that the the hand of Bob Meyerwood sits at the very beginning of this thing, you know, at the very very beginning of it, and I don't think that he, in any way, really, he doesn't deserve to be portrayed as some type of fall guy or some type of guy who the business that failed or whatever. He 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 
put up the fight when nobody else was fighting. Right. And that's that's to be, you know, that's outrageous. So I just want well, I want to say thank you for the podcast and, and thank you for this life, I guess, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, here, here. I'm divorced, miserable. Mm-hmm. You're in Costa Rica, you know, living it up there. Is it really a thank you we owe him? <laughs> it's his fault. Mom, dad, it's not me. It's Bob. But, you know, at the end of the day, Miguel, like, uh, you know, just echo what you're saying, Bob. You know, if you're still listening, Bob, thank you very much. And I will tell you that my mother still does have, I have a brother who's a doctor, and uh, my mother can still be proud of him. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. So here, here's the things with, with mixed martial arts it's a short list, but there's certain agendas that get pushed through news media art outlets that are solely there. So one day people will believe them. And it has nothing to do with reality. One, John McCain helped the sport. That's not true. You know, that, that's just like saying, you know, list some tragic, like some heinous murderer dictator of a country and just say, well, you know, he just didn't kill good people. He also killed bad people. It's just, no, no, no. John McCain was not good for mixed martial arts. And I'll tell you another thing, that he was a failed businessman. Anybody that writes that, like Andy Anderson, we talked about him. One of the major publications wrote that he was like a white power guy. Like, it's not, those things aren't true. Like, you're making them up because you've got a predetermined finish line. And now you're going to write the article trying to meet the finish line, even when it's just an imaginary one. It's like, those three things are not true. And anybody that writes them, they, they should be taken to task. They really should. I mean, the guy did very well for himself and carried a sport. What, how many events? Like 32 events? Or was it? Yeah, 35. I think yeah. Uh, 33 is when he sold. And then and you've got the Brazil and the Japan one. I, I don't know if 0.5 was, was Japan. Yeah. Was him or whatever, but they didn't count. So give him credit for 35 groundbreaking events from the start. You know? So he does 35 events with, you know, maybe four or five a year dealing with court battles. Like, dude, the, the guy's a hero. Our baby yeah. hero, Bob Meyerowitz hero, Horry and Gracie hero. Those three people right there, there should be statues of them. There, there, there really should be. That's why we're, you're listening because of them. So, Miguel, I think I'm getting off my soapbox. I, that, that was almost therapeutic. I feel like Marcus Davis now, you know, a little bit better now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really happy for the podcast. I do think that, you know, Bob has, you know, given us a, a chance here or kind of come back to the sport with this because he really is a guy who has kind of like, you know, forgotten in the sport and like he doesn't, you know, come and stick himself in there either. So I think that's a little nervous good. too. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. I think yeah. I think that that's not his thing. I think that's not his thing. I think when you saw in the interview his passion for John McCarthy and how he really does like him still and how he feels like he helped him a lot and saved the day, I think that's one of the major things is that McCarthy did become the guy who organized things, did the rule meetings, press conferences, and things like that that they did. It kept Bob out of that because I don't think Bob's 100% comfortable in, in that kind of like uh, chaotic atmosphere. You know what I mean? Well, so, well, prior to the interview, you know, we were kind of discussing, kind of running through it. He admitted like he was, 
oh man, yeah, I was a little nervous. This, 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 he took himself out of his comfort zone, exposed himself here, and, and, you know, gave us what his best version of the answers to our questions. Um, yeah, I, I think our Davy may got done dirty, dirty a little bit, but who knows, you know, the games that were being played there, you know, who knows? Yeah, we weren't there. Yeah, it wasn't our money. It wasn't Art's money. It was Bob's. Yeah. You know, you know, well, I mean, that's that's the that's the thing that really seals the deal on it. You know what I mean? Because he, you know, and he also understands about where the Fatitas came from and that the Fatitas were just bigger fish, you know. Dude, and, I try to get it. I try to get it, man. I tried. I tried. <laughs> It was a valiant effort. Would you not? Can, can you? You know, it, it it's still it is what it is. It is what it is. But I I, I don't think, you know, I yeah, I think I think Bob, there you saw the lawyer streak, right? So, I can tell cool. you what the I, issue. I respect that. You know, I can tell you the issue. He came in timid, which is good. I mean, you should. You don't know what's going to be asked. You know, there's there's a large body of. Yeah, it's on video. We could ask him anything we want. And then if he's mad about it, we can just throw it on YouTube and be jerks about it. Do you know what I mean? So he really opened himself up and exposed himself. And his approach, like he's listened to several episodes. So he knows he knows what we're up to. You know, get you comfortable. Get you comfortable. (laughs) Relax a little bit. Kick back in the chair. I don't want to brag, Mike, but I think he's a Miguel fan. You know, I don't know. I don't know about, you know, anything else. I think he likes me. I think I'm a cool guy. New Yorker, you know, New York. Yeah, but yeah. He, he knew he knew the setup. He knew he knew we were coming in here to grease his wheels and then hit him with some hard questions. Oh, no, yeah. no, he knew. He knew. He even <laughs> at one point, he even said, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself and get you out of format. Like, yes, yeah, he, said, he yeah. said that. So, like, he, he's that. Yeah, like he I goes, said. Yeah, whenever we get to this, oh, I'm like, yeah, I already said it. I go, he already knows what we're up to. Gig he's, is up. <laughs> he's, a, he's a fan of the podcast. And that, you know, I'm going to just leave it at that. Bob Myers is a fan of the podcast. That makes me so happy. And and Lytle, I know, is very proud. He's running around saving kittens. But, you know, everybody's pumped over this interview. And that's why it's a New Year's delivery here, right? Yeah. And, and you know what this means? Guarantees. Art Davey's going to be angry and he's going to want to come back on because he's going to want his side. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I hope that's the case. Even if he's not angry, you know, yeah. I, Art, yeah. another yeah, cherry, yeah. cherry dude. We got to get him back. I'd love to get everybody back. So without, well, this is the first edition with Bob Meyer, which we may not get Bob back. You know, he's a classy dude who's got his own life, but maybe, yeah. he's, you know, maybe he's shacking up all holiday season, listening to all 70 of our podcasts. That could be too. <laughs> Guys, got to consider that. So. <laughs> right, right. Well, at the end of the day, Miguel, it's it's the content that we're producing. We're really proud of, and it's unique, and it's not easy to get. And we do it twice a week. And you know, if you guys at home can like, share, subscribe, if you can help us with our Instagram page, get on Reddit. You know, things of that nature. Crowbar, Genghis Conrad, man, you guys were amazing. You guys have really helped this podcast grow, and. Um, you know, it, it will never forget that. So greatly appreciate it, guys.